Jamila Rizvi is an author, presenter and political commentator and writes regularly for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Good Weekend and Sunday Life. She's also a commentator on the project, Today, The Drum and ABC News Breakfast, and the Chief Creative Officer of Future Women. Described as one of the preeminent voices of young Australian women online, Jamila is a refreshing force for change, advocate for women, and pushes conversations and ideas to work toward a more equal world. In this conversation, we talk to Jamila about her quest to push to the edge and sometimes over it, the cost of living life at full throttle and her ongoing health battles with brain cancer, which have forced her to confront the discomfort of living in her new body and grieving the old one. Jamila reflects on her metric of success, never wanting to leave anyone feeling left out and the value of passing down wisdom from women who have gone before. Here's our chat with Jamila. Jamila Rizvi, you're a journalist, prolific writer, best-selling author and purveyor of stories. If you wrote the story of you, what would it be called? Oh, my God. Hard question to begin with. <laughs> um, are we supposed to get to know each other first? No, we don't do small nice talk. Warm up. We go straight for marriage. I have a uh, partner and absolute love of my life who genuinely is the reason that I'm able to do anything. Uh, and he is perfect in every way except he's the world's slowest human being, always late takes hours to do his hair, stands in front of the mirror, changes clothes seven times. And I think if you wrote the story of my life, it would be a life spent waiting for Jeremy because that's pretty much what I do. Oh, I wait for Jeremy. Did you also spend a life waiting until you met Jeremy? Yes, I did some waiting then too, but I definitely do more waiting. But waiting for him to come along, I wonder, because he sounds like he's everything you would have ordered. Yeah, he definitely, I don't think I waited because that suggests I wasn't doing much and I was hustling for the right person the same way I tend to hustle for everything in my life. Um, But I was making a lot of bad choices and bad decisions before I met him for sure. Are you the, the hare and he's the turtle? Yeah, definitely. That is um, a perfect description. I'm the extrovert. He's the introvert. I'm the one that says, why can't we have a seventh barbecue this weekend? I don't understand. I haven't socialized enough. I'm the one that wants to do everything. And he's the one that slows me down and makes me think about things. So you're like an uber doer. One only has to look at your Instagram and to try and keep up with the spinning plates in your life. And it's amazing what you achieve in in the face of of all the things you're juggling. How do you know when you've done enough? I don't think I've ever felt that, if I'm honest. I don't don't think I've ever felt like I've done enough, which I suspect reveals something deeply unhealthy. Yeah, I'm not someone who's easily satisfied. I am someone who takes a lot of joy in things and I'm, I'm perhaps almost overly enthusiastic. Like I throw myself into everything I do at, at full force. I'm kind of like leave a hole in the, in the wall sort of person. Like I'd, I'd rather run into things and make a giant disaster than not have given it a good red hot crack. And that's not just work. That's kind of every aspect of, of my life. I don't think I've ever just felt satisfied. Mm. Take us back to your younger years and have you always lived at this 100% bull at a gate uh, pace? Yeah, I have. My mum still tells stories of the fact that every year, every school holidays, I would get sick the first day of school holidays because 
I used to push myself so hard during term with activities and school and colouring in competitions and, you know, ridiculous things uh, that meant I would just completely wear myself out and I'd get sick as soon as, as soon as I kind of stopped and, and took a breath. I graduated high school. If your extracurricular activities had counted towards your grades, I would have graduated twice because I just did everything. Um, and I was, never, I was never the best at anything. I just wanted to try everything. I think I've, I've got a terrible case of FOMO mm. and I take joy in a lot of things and I like that sense of mastering something or trying to master something even if I'm not that great at it. And what does success look like to you? What's the metric of doing a life well lived? I tend to judge it by what other people feel, not so much what other people think, but what other people feel. I definitely live, I think, by that adage that people don't remember what you say or what you do, but they do remember how you made them feel. Is that Maya Angelou? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I live by that in, as much as I possibly can. And that, and that includes in, in speaking and writing, absolutely. I, I tend to be led by the kind of feeling I want people to have or the reassurance that I want to give in what I'm writing and what I'm creating. And then at a, at a personal level, you know, like I have a great fear of leaving someone out. That, that's like a, a deep-seated fear of mine. My husband often jokes that a party for 10 people with me is a party for 40 people because I get so nervous that someone might feel upset that they weren't invited, so I just keep inviting everyone. To the point that I remember we once bought a new dining table because I'd invited too many people for dinner. So I think, yeah, I definitely live uh, life at full throttle as much as I can. Have you felt left out? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we've all felt left out at some points in our Life, I definitely remember that feeling as a kid. I remember being told by a girl in my year called Martine that she was only allowed eight people at her birthday party and I absolutely would have been number nine, but I wasn't invited. Do we want to call Martine? And (laughs) Look, I don't have a number, but if anyone knows her, let's tap her down because it was harsh. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so, Jamila, like you have fit a lot in, and 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 your force is to be reckoned with, um, and your output is amazing. You've talked openly about your health challenges over recent years. How have yeah. they? How have they changed your relationship with the with your velocity? They are changing my relationship with my velocity velocity actively <laughs> um, as we go. I think I. I'm still trying to live as if I had my old body. My old body had functions and capacity that my new body does not. I think I'm going through a process of transition now. I I think I went through sort of two to three years of of fighting to stay alive. And it appears at this point, knock on all the wood, um, that I have won that fight, at least for now. But now I'm going through almost, I think, a more complex adjustment, which is learning to live with the body that's been left behind by all those surgeries and all that radiation and all that intervention. And all, you know, all those disabilities and chronic illnesses I now live with are the cost of being alive for me. So, you know, I, I, would, I would take them any day of the week. I don't get to be here otherwise. But I am learning where my new limits are. And unfortunately, at the moment, 
because I want to live as close as I possibly can to the edge of those those limits, I'm still not quite finding them. So I'm pushing past them a little bit too regularly, um, landing myself in emergency at Royal Melbourne more than my doctors or my partner would like or I would like actually. Are they telling you that there's lifestyle correlations to ending up? Oh, back yeah, in absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, like the, I, I was in hospital um, about two weeks ago, ended up in emergency in something called an adrenal crisis, which is a reality of my condition, which can be really serious. Like, you know, I don't want to be melodramatic, but can, can cause death. Um, and um, they, they ran a whole bunch of tests and checked for all sorts of underlying um, viruses and things like that and then said to me, it's because you've been getting up at four in the morning every day to do the briefing podcast and then working a normal day afterwards. Like you can't do that. Mm, Your body I, can't I, do I that. I did wonder when you were fitting that in uh, by the, by nature of its format, uh, it is daily. Um yeah, I suppose I suppose I'd love to understand again, like that question I asked early on, like how do you know you've done an, enough? How, how do you now that you've got these edges that you say you're pushing past and there's some consequence there? Um, how can you self-limit and set limits around what's enough, where you've got exponential talents? It looks like. No, that's it's very generous. I'm not sure if that's true, but I definitely have exponential enthusiasm mm-hmm. <laughs> and desire <laughs> to do things. I'm learning. I think I'm, le- I'm learning because I have to like to, to be honest I, I am being given no choice like I am going to have to set fiercer limits than I have previously and I, I have started to you know even before the pandemic I I was traveling a lot a lot less than I than I used to I um, now put blocks in my diary of time where I say do not schedule so in that period, I might write or I might do something. It's not like I'm necessarily going to go to sleep, but I, I'm sort of forcing myself a couple of times each week not to just pack more stuff in mm. or think of another thing I can do to, to occupy that that time, but give myself space. And can I, can I remind you that um, I'm, we're talking to someone who has released not one but two books during the pandemic, during the downtime, and uh, so you've obviously been really busy and prolific during that time. Um, sometimes it seems like the things that, that you put out into the world are things that uh, seem to be deeply need to exist. And I wanted to ask you about Untold Resilience, your latest book. Um, yeah. Why, why do you think this book needed to exist and why do the stories need to be told? And why now? Yeah, I might answer that in two parts if that's okay. Firstly, why it needs to exist. This is a book that is a collection of stories of 19 Australian women who have lived through major global upheaval before. So that includes pandemics, uh, the Great Depression, world wars, also other huge global events. Several of them are refugees, for example. I wanted to tell those stories because I think history is still very much viewed through the prism of men's lives. And I also think that the least listened to and the least respected group of people in society are older women, that we still value women for aesthetic reasons and for reproductive reasons. And once those two things are starting to disappear, once you're not young and beautiful and not having babies, we tend to think women aren't very relevant anymore. And I think that's both shameful and stupid. Because the women in this book who are mostly aged in their 80s and 90s are examples of what we're missing out on if we don't value the stories of older women and the lessons of older women. The why now question is 
because I really wanted to talk to my nan when the pandemic started. Mm. I wanted to talk to a woman who had lived through uh, tuberculosis, who was quarantined at home to look after her siblings during the polio epidemic, who had done this. She had done this. We like to think we're the first generation, and of course we're the first generation to go through this on this scale in such modern times where we have that sense of this is happening all over the globe. But a lot of what we're going through is common. It has happened before. And my nan passed away um, in 2013. I couldn't talk to her, but I could talk to other people's nans. So Untold Resilience is the stories of extraordinary Australian women who have related the more difficult parts of their own lives, but also given lessons for people who are alive alive today. And I think it's incredibly reassuring. Mm. And also I think, Jamila, in that you've touched on a, well, a couple of important things there and that largely history is told by men and there's so many untold experiences of women where there's wisdom lost. Uh, it's not passed on. There's these unspoken quietudes or struggles or triumphs in ordinary lives of women that really often go unnoticed, unsaid, undocumented. For you, what was the most, having conducted all those interviews and spent all that time, uh, virtual time with those women, what was the most surprising thing about the stories told by some of those women? Oh, it's hard to pick the most surprising. There are are a handful of things I took from it. Uh, One of the women I spoke to, Val Riley, was a child of the Depression. Uh, She grew up in country Victoria. She went on to become a tuberculosis nurse, got married quite young, had four children, and was in an extremely violent marriage, which she ultimately left with four children under 10 at the time, which was an extraordinary time to be a single mum, an unusual time to be a single mum. And she's fabulous. She's, she's in her late 80s now, and she still marks BCE exams in Victoria. Yes, she's wow. the, the most, she's the coolest woman I've ever met, I think. <laughs> and she said to me about living on rations during the Depression that it was easier because everyone was doing it, that poverty is hardest when you are alone in your poverty mm. and isolated in your poverty, and that for her... The fact that everyone was giving tea rations to, to Nana and no one had lollies or sweets, you know, no one had nice new clothes, everyone was wearing hand-me-downs, that there was a sense of being in this together and surviving together. And that in particular has, has really stuck with me during this pandemic because I felt quite isolated and alone and scared, which is similar to how I felt when I was really sick mm-hmm. and going through brain surgeries and, and the like. But at a purely personal level, it's, the pandemic's been easier because it's a shared experience. And it's as terrifying as it is, there are other people who know what it's like. Yeah. And it is um, research is coming out now from a psychological perspective that we have experienced a communal trauma. And that word is mm. not being used lightly. And I think it's important that we, we, you know, pay homage to that word and acknowledge it for what it is for many, many people. Why do you think it is then that we have this sense, this strong narrative that no one has been through what we are all experiencing now? Look, I think, it, you know, it's, it's not unusual. Every generation thinks mm. it's doing it the toughest and um, that no one's ever been through this before and, and, and that we're new and novel and we remake the world to be ours. And, of course, it's not true. Humanity's been around for a very long time. Mm. We live in Australia with the oldest continuing culture in the world. People have been here a while. These traumas and feelings have been felt before, if not in these exact mm. same ways. But I, we have a need to be understood and to be, to be felt. And it, it, 
and and to have that empathy and have people realize how hard things have been for us. And I think, uh, you know, I live in Melbourne and uh, I've watched Victorians say, it's so annoying. No one understands. Like I'm trying to get my mum in Sydney or my auntie in Queensland or my cousins in WA. They don't know. They weren't, they haven't gone through it. There's almost this anger, this anger of you don't get it and it, and I need you to get it. The only way they get it is if they go through it too. You can't, you can't wish that on someone. Yeah, well, you can't get it unless you stand in someone else, truly stand in someone else's shoes and deeply mm. empathise through walking that path. And I think empathy, you know, that's why empathy takes work. You, you know what I mean? It, it, empathy is, is making that stretch, is pushing past your own experience to try and understand someone else's. Not to fully understand it, you can't, mm. but to try. Um, and I think it's the act of trying that matters. Yeah. Have you, do you think you've had, maybe it's the wrong word to use, but do you think you've had enough empathy for yourself with what you've been through personally? I think I've had um, enormous support, enormous support. Uh, like if we, if we were drawing a, a graph of the depth of gratitude of <laughs> people who've looked after me, oh, my gosh, it's really deep, guys, <laughs> really deep. Um, it's a fall, off, a fall off a cliff kind of looking graph. Yeah, I think I have on the most part. I think I, I think my friends and family have tried to understand. I say that now, sort of, you know, feeling like I can look back on it. There were certainly moments in that time I felt that rage of you don't get it. And I have definitely yelled that at my husband, at my sister, at the people closest to me who you feel like you can yell at. Um, <laughs> but you don't understand. And that fury of how do I make you understand how hard this is, how scary it is how frustrating it is to be stuck in this body that doesn't work anymore. But in the end, I, I don't want them to understand because the only way they fully understand is to have the same thing happen to them. And of course, I don't want that. But I think once you move past that initial moment of those feelings, you can move to a place where you say you tried to understand and you did everything you could to understand and you acknowledged the limits of your understanding. And I think that, I think that is really key. In a perfect world, which we don't live in, what would you need to be understood most? Hmm. I think being unwell and being significantly unwell requires you to grapple with the story you've been told, which is that you're born and you live a life and there's an expectancy on how long that life will be. And most of us assume our lives will run about as long as the average human being in the country we're born in, you know. And I felt like someone stole that expectation. I now occupy, sometimes really acutely, sometimes in a more passing way, but a place of complete uncertainty of, is my body going to work today? Is my body going to let me down today? I live in a place of shock where I walk past a mirror and I forget that I don't look the same and that I look significantly different because in my head I still feel like, I still look like, I still am the same person. And mm. I wish I could explain those feelings to everyone mm. because I, I feel like I've tried and I, I can't, you know, my job is to have the right words and I still don't mm. have the right words to explain it to people. Is it listening to you, is it partly bringing those two stories together for yourself in a way? Mm, I think I think that's that's um, that's true. I think um, I think there's a mental health story and a physical health story, and 
those two things are so completely intertwined mm. and yet the world sees them as separate. What's your mental health story? Um, oh, wow, guys. Gosh, you're going deep. Well, um, I am a psychologist. I think I can ask Yeah, be question. very, very <laughs> careful of her. Okay, I will. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. I think I'm someone who had always had, I would say, pretty good mental health with a small side salad of anxiety mm-hmm. before I got sick. And then when I got sick, that anxiety went from a small side salad to like the king's feast. Um, I'm now torturing this analogy, but that's what I've got. Uh, it just took over. I, like I, I, find it, I find it really hard to talk about the period between finding out I was sick, which was an enormous shock, an enormous shock. Like I felt very well, um, if, if that makes sense. I, you know, I, I, I ran eight kilometres the day I went into hospital to have my brain tumour removed. How did you find out? Like what, what happened? Uh, I skipped period and I went to my GP and he said, that's unusual for you. Let's do some tests just to be safe. She said, take this test. I want you to do them the first day it comes back. And then a month later, I still hadn't had a period. So I called her again and she said, just do the test. And the test showed I had no estrogen. Like everything else was normal, but I had zero estrogen. And she was like, that is weird. You need to see an endocrinologist. I'm going to get you to see a gynecologist. We'll get to the bottom of it. And um, they ordered a brain scan just to rule out anything in that space. And I remember one of them even saying to me, don't worry, it's just, it's just like a formality. We always do a brain scan. Mm. Good formality. Good, sensible formality. Because <laughs> mm. um, uh, I have a very rare kind of brain tumour that was um, at, at the time they found it about two and a half by three by three centimetres. So it was a decent size by the time they found it. It was doing some damage. Clearly. So my mental state, I think, after I found out was just, it was almost a dissociative state. Mm. Like, I, I, I don't remember being in the world. I, I remember I was, I was hosting radio for the ABC across country in the afternoons. I was filling in for three weeks in the January before I had my first brain surgery. And I was a big tennis player as a kid. And I interviewed Yelena Dokic on radio. And that afternoon in the foyer, I saw Yelena Dockage. So I went over and introduced myself and said, oh, you know, I, I watched you when I was a kid and I'm a huge fan. And, and she just looked at me and said, yes, we have met. Like, we, we spoke on the radio an hour ago. Like, I just didn't re- I remember. Like, I was, I was on air and I didn't. A- hours later, within, within hours. Yeah. And no memory. Yeah. Of it. And that's the, that is the dissociative. The, the, the... I was floating. Mm. I think. Mm. Yeah, and what does that anxiety look like today? It's very, very different um, for me, and it's different for everyone. Obviously, I, my anxiety reached its absolute high point in, in those months between the day I was diagnosed and the day I had the first surgery. Mm. Even ahead of my second brain surgery, which was far more dangerous, I was much calmer, and I was quite calm through most of radiation. Now, I think my mental health is in a pretty good place. I think there's a little bit of bitterness in there still and there's probably still a bit of anger for what's happened that I haven't fully worked through yet Mm. but I've come to terms with the reality of this tumour might grow back one day and I've managed to compartmentalise the anxiety and the fear to the day I have the scan 
and between then and when I get the results. How do you do that? Like what techniques have you used to work on that? Oh, I, well, I, don't, I don't know. It's almost I, I, it's almost not a technique and then I, I, I say that having worked with some really great psychologists who can be wonderful techniques but what seems to work and it took me a while to get here. I don't want to suggest this is easy because I took me a very long time to get here. I used to be scared constantly. But I've almost gone, okay, there's a really good chance that I live a long life now and this humor never grows back. And I don't want to be a beautiful, comfy chair and someone say to me, why did you spend your whole life worried? Mm. Like there was nothing to worry about. Mm. So I've, it's almost like I've chosen to worry when there's a reason to worry mm-hmm. as, as much as possible. And that's not to say there aren't some nights or days when it just breaks through when I, I get scared again. But for the most part, I think to be able to do that. And I allow myself a period of fear. The second I step out of that MRI machine, I'm like, I'm scared. Mm. I'm officially scared. I'm scared now. <laughs> mm. Mm. I mean, anxiety is really a what if. That's what ang- that's what underpins anxiety. Mm. And when we're in a present moment, we're not in a what if. And I always think depression is more a reflection of um, regret. It's looking backwards. Mm. And what you just described then was really around sitting in the present moment and not mm. being hijacked by the what if. Yeah, I think that's true. Like I think I've gotten to a place where I can sit there, but I think a lot of my um, emotions now are and my, my the brain capacity is caught up in dealing with the ramifications of my illness mm. and sort of the disabilities and chronic illness that remain. And I've, I, that dominates my brain space now more than fear of the tumour mm. returning. One of our guests on Human Cogs, Kath, she lived with breast cancer and has been treated for breast mm. cancer. And she's very articulate and insightful and open about her journey with breast cancer and made some really significant um, life changes. She changed her career. She changed wow. her health habits. She changed the routine and rituals of her every day. And it sounds like that's not been something you've wanted to do. In fact, in some ways no. you've put your foot down harder. I mean, we we were kind of exploring what have you done differently and you said, well, I'm travelling less, but um, not to take anything from away from that choice except you can't really be travelling at the moment with COVID. So um, <laughs> I don't think we can give full, full brownie points for travelling less. And then you said I create a couple of blocks in my week where I have a break. They're, they're, they're quite minor changes with the challenges and the changes that you're describing. Yeah. I wrote two letters. Oh, my gosh, this is more. Like, I wrote two letters before I um, went into my first brain surgery saying goodbye to my husband and my son <sighs> because I felt like I needed to. I don't know why I'm saying I wrote the letters. I recorded voice memos because I am a child of the age mm. and uh, we did voice memos. Anyway, but they were long, long letters. And to my husband, I said very honestly, I am not going to be one of those people who wants to change their whole life because I got sick. The clarity that I've gotten of being ill, and there is a clarity that comes with it, that life or death clarity, hasn't meant that I've seen all these things I want to change. It's the opposite. I desperately just want to be allowed to live this life because I've got a really good life. That's all I want. I just want to be allowed to live it. And, yeah, I've made a few little changes, um, Mm. mostly because I have to, not because I wanted to, uh, around my medications and things like that and and my my limits. 
and you know I have to go to bed a little bit earlier and things like that. But no, no wholehearted changes. Mm, I um, think you've just described that really beautifully as to why you haven't wanted to make those changes. You're holding on even tighter to the to the life that you've carved out for yourself, and you don't want to edit it. Yeah, I just like I I, I define myself in a big way through the people that I care about, and I just I want to be Jeremy's wife. And I want to be Nim's sister and Helen and Abel's child. And I want to be Ruffy's mum. And I want to be allowed to do that for as long as possible. That's mm. all I want. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just t- oh look you've got us speechless that's yeah. bad keep that in keep that there's in. only that one of good. you and two of us and we just had to sit with that there all right well thank you for sharing all of that it's it's a massive journey you've been on can we switch gear slightly into what you actually do do day to day and that's play a massive you're a juggernaut force in media particularly in women's media uh, over at future women if we think about through the pandemic and the, and the deep you know the area of deep fake um, and news itself and the fracturing of that environment has the pandemic changed your relationship with news oh what a great question it has at times so i don't think it has for the long term but i think it has at periods during the pandemic there have been points where I have had to switch off or at least downgrade my consumption of news uh, because I knew it wasn't good for me. And, mm. um, you know, I, I think I think it hit its most acute point when uh, we were having breakfast one morning and I said to my husband, um, oh, what are the numbers today? And he said whatever it was. And my five-year-old said, and how many deaths? Uh. And I just went, yeah, okay, no. Nah. Mm. No, you know, and we've been pretty careful, I thought, to shield him from television being on and things like that. But, you know, he'd pick pick that up and um, I was like, no, that's a bit much for me. (laughs) A bit much for me. Yeah. Also through the pandemic, we've had this massive over-indexing toward dystopia um, and the news Mm. has has banked toward that. And given you you do the briefing, um, the daily drop, what responsibility do you feel to um, provide a balanced view of the world? I feel an enormous responsibility. I have a particular perspective on the world. You know, I'm, I'm someone with progressive politics and I believe strongly in inclusivity and equality in all regards. So I bring that to my writing. I've never called myself a, a reporter or a journalist generally because I've always been an opinion columnist and my job has been to have an opinion Mm. Um, or I've been a commentator in the news and my job has been to have an opinion. And the briefing has been a really different experience for me because for the most part, my job is to stand back and to be more objective when I talk about the news. But at the same time, I am asked to comment on it. And so I try to be quite honest and open when I comment about it to be clear with the perspective that I'm coming from. And I think one of the things as I've watched news and reporting and opinion change over the years is that there's this merging of opinion and reporting Mm. to the point that there are people who present their opinion as fact. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And And on that, like how do you check your bias then or how do you know the sources mm. of truth you're going to in a fake news world increasingly are actually truth? Yeah. And sometimes you don't. I've noticed I've, I've started prefacing and a lot of my mates have done the same. They say, oh, so I, I saw on Twitter, I mean, it might not be true, but, you know, like we, we, we are caging against it because we know what we're saying might not be true. I get really anxious sometimes when I'm interviewing someone and I'll go down the rabbit hole on one particular question because I want to read 50 sources just to be 
sure that I'm right because I, mm. I get worried. I found something that's inaccurate online and I, I don't want to repeat it. So, you know, there's more responsibility than ever on journalists, but I think there's also responsibility on people like me who are or opinion makers to make clear when we are reporting and when we are giving an opinion. Mm. Well, with, with the briefing then, where would you go? What are your sources? Because um, we can't read them all. So if you had to narrow that down. Mm. Well, I think it, it, I mean, it depends on the story, annoyingly, <laughs> where, where, where you have to go to. I, I suppose I tend to try and read broadly. Um, I'm less leaning, but I subscribe to the Murdoch papers. I make sure I um, read them as much as I read the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and The Guardian. I try and uh, keep across some of the lighter news sources in Australia and the commentary in that space. I tend to follow things like pedestrian or junkie. I delve into the honeys and the mamma mias and the women's news. I'm also um, a big fan of the Saturday paper and the 7am podcast. Um, So I I, I try and consume news from a variety of sources and I can't believe I just haven't listed the ABC, uh, which is where I spend a lot of my time. (laughs) I try and go broad and I've done that. Trump was elected because I was one of those bleeding heart lefties who got a shock and just went, I have let myself become a victim of my Facebook feed showing me news I agree with and I've got Mm. to go find some other news. Mm. Yes, because is it enough to say I'm an opinion maker or a thought leader and therefore... That that's the messaging I share because, I, I, as we said, a lot of people can't differentiate. So they think if Jamila says it, then it must be. Mm. If they agree. I think there's a difference. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I, I always double, triple check, check facts, you know, if I'm using data or if I am quoting someone or if I'm stating something as fact, I will always double, triple check it. Yeah, I mean, I'm an opinion columnist. My job is to be convincing when I'm writing a column arguing for um, government-funded childcare. I have a position. I think that would be a good thing for our country if childcare wasn't subsidised but it was fully funded the way our school system is. That's a view I hold. I'm trying to be persuasive. I'm trying to bring facts to the table that support my view, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm. Um, it could the same fact could be presented with someone arguing uh, with a different perspective. Of course, we also don't get enough male voices uh, or, or diverse versus voices um, carrying the opinions at the time. What? How do you think we can bring more female voices into the public debate? I think that the mainstream newspapers and television, as well, need to take a good hard look at themselves and a look at their diversity of who they speak to. A lot of us just go to the easy person. And some of this has to do with the fact that journalism is so underfunded now. Mm. You know, the person that used to write one story and they now write four stories. And so, yeah, you go to the quick, easy source who's already in your phone who is probably a white guy. Mm. And so we tend to get the same voices again and again. Diversity takes work. It takes effort. And it's not good enough to say, I don't know anyone. It's just not, not good enough. I have a particular bugbear when we are discussing issues that directly affect a certain population and we've got a panel of people on television and we don't have someone who is directly affected by those issues. So I think for me, my role in that is when I am putting together those panels or bringing together those authors or in the book that I've just done on called Resilience, making sure that the women that we featured in that book were diverse uh, on a whole range of measures. It's about being deliberate and doing the work. And if you're someone who isn't the decision maker, 
It's about using the power you do have. For example, if I'm on television and we're discussing an an Indigenous issue and there's no one Indigenous on the panel, I'll always just send a really friendly email, not critical, just saying, hey, I noticed we're discussing, I don't know, amendment to the preamble of the Constitution or whatever it might be, and I noticed there's no one Indigenous on the panel, I'm happy to sub out so you can get someone. Mm. Um, offer a solution, be useful. Yeah, you're putting your money where your mouth is there and encouraging them to do the same. Jamil, what is next for you? I have some new um, health challenges that I'm getting on top of as radiation keeps working its way through my brain and taking some things with it. So that's big for me. My little boy is starting primary school next year, which is going to take up a lot of time and is exciting and stressful all at once. I am writing a book with my friend Rosie Waterland that is well behind its due date and we need to get started on that's about the kind of that space in between physical and mental health and how we navigate that space uh, from a whole lot of perspectives. And future women and writing for uh, the nine newspapers for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Good Weekend and Sunday Life also keeps me pretty busy. So across those things, I've got I've got a bit planned. Yeah, you sound like yeah, you're pretty lazy. Um, that sounds like well, we um exciting things coming up for you, and we wish you all the best of, of of health going forward. We like to end all of these conversations asking, I guess, this final question and acknowledging life can be pretty messy and unpredictable and uncertain. Who do you think is doing human really well? Oh, what a good question. Who is doing human really well? I'm going to name all women. Is that a problem? No. Sorry, that's what's going to happen. That is abundant <laughs> and excellent. Um, I think Jan Fram, my colleague on the briefing, is doing life really well. Uh, she trapped me on the briefing just the other day into not buying anything new for the rest of the year. Uh, she is a woman who lives um, her beliefs around sustainability and ethical fashion, and she does it in a really sickeningly hot way. So I'm putting Jan down as an option. Claire Bowditch, who is my a partner in crime on a whole bunch of events that we run in Melbourne, both online and in person, is one of my heroes of the pandemic. She, on top of everything else, lost her mum in the middle of the pandemic and in Melbourne at, at a time where being close to her mum was hard and restricted. And yet she still puts out an enormous amount of tenderness and love into the world through her work and is really open about her own personal experiences because she knows it'll help the people who follow her and listen to her, which I think is wonderful. And my other friend, Magda Zabanski, is another hero of the pandemic who has been saying really factual, sensible things online about vaccines and keeping people safe and being healthy and is being trolled by lots of very, very strange people uh, that live on this earth. And yet she keeps showing up and she keeps arguing for health and science and for vaccines and for believing in truth and she's someone who is doesn't have to be political it's not what she's famous for and yet she chooses to do good things Mm. i think those people mainly live in the halls of twitter that are um hanging out and causing (laughs) issues Um, beautiful collection of human beings and i can imagine having um sitting at a dinner with jan and claire and magda and Jamila and having meaningful, thought-provoking conversations, which is what this has been for us. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. 
We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.